Now let us turn and read together Psalm 19. This is a psalm that uh, is found in what throughout church history has been referred to as the prayer book of the Christians. And um, in the book of Psalms, if you open your Bible up to the middle, you'll just let it fall open in the middle, you'll come to this prayer book. There are 150 psalms. The longest chapter of Scripture is here in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. And the theme of that whole chapter is the beauty and the glory and the holiness and the perfection and on and on and on of the Word of God. And so the longest chapter in all of Scripture uh, dwells on the excellence of Scripture. And uh, there are many places in this book of Psalms where uh, we find in the New Testament uh, various people, various groups praying what is in the Psalms. Um, For instance, we see that it's the prayer book of Jesus. We see that when Jesus, for instance, was on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46, we read that as he was on the cross about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we turn back to Psalm 22, verse 1, near the text we'll read this morning, we see there that it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Then again, on the cross, we see in Luke 23, 46, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And if we turn to Psalm 31, verse 5, we see, Into your hand I commit my spirit. If we go into the book of Acts and we see where the early church is persecuted, and we see how they respond, we'll see that they go to prayer. And if we look at their prayer, we'll see in Acts 2, verses 24 to 26, this is the substance of the early church's prayer when they're being persecuted. They lifted their voices to God with one accord, we read there in Acts 4, And they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Well, if we go back to the Christian's prayer book and we look at Psalm 146.6, we see... It's speaking of God who, it says, made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then, of course, if we go to Psalm 2, we see that Psalm 2, beginning with verse 1, says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so, again, we see that the early church used the book of Psalms as their prayer book in Think of what uh, knowledge of Scripture they had to be able to, in that moment of crisis when they're being persecuted, to just weave together quotes from the Old Testament and specifically from the book of Psalms. What a knowledge of the Bible they had. And when we go to the book of Psalms for our needs today, we have the same satisfaction, the same knowledge that there's nothing that we can take Uh, from this book that is not appropriate for us today. It's not an Old Testament book that's done, but rather it is a timeless revelation from God of proper 
approaches to God in prayer, the things we should say to God in prayer. And we all know, for instance, that for a time of suffering and death, there are a few things that are better than Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. And what a comfort this has been to believers through the centuries as they have gone to the edge of the great chasm, the great divide between now and eternity. And they have said to themselves, the Lord is my shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. For young men who are suffering temptation and old men and women, where could we go better than Psalm 119 where we read what? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so this is why we in our own homes and in church and in our Sunday school classes, this is why we memorize scripture. Because as we hide the word of God in our hearts, it protects us from sin. And what about a time of failure when we fall on our faces and commit sin, often the most heinous sins, the worst sins you could imagine against God. What do we do then? Is there nothing in the Bible to lead us back? Is there no prayer for us to return to God and ask his forgiveness? Well, yes, there is, and it's Psalm 51. And here we find an account of King David, who had been given all the riches of worship and of uh, kingly reign and so many glorious things from his God, courage and strength and the love of other godly people. And this David who fell into adultery and then tried to cover up his adultery by sending after the woman became pregnant by sending in her husband to her to sleep with her and failed in that and then finally just killed him. Uh, this psalm, when he's confronted with his sin, shows us how to approach God when we ourselves have fallen into terrible sin where David writes, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then, few of us who know this psalm would fail to have it as one of our favorites. Psalm 103, which is a psalm of great comfort when we need to be reminded that God knows our sins, but that he is very aware of how weak we are and that he loves us still and that he will be tender with us in our weakness. About five or six years ago, we all of us worked to memorize Psalm 103 and then had individual people recite it during our Sunday evening service. You might remember that. But just reading an excerpt from this prayer that God has given us, so beautiful. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame, that we are made of dust. How true it is. Now, death. 
Psalm 23. Temptation, Psalm 119. Confession of sin and to request that God cleanse us, Psalm 51. Meditation on God's tender fatherhood and his knowledge of our weakness, Psalm 103. Where would we turn, though, if we were to ask God to continue the work of holiness and cleansing in us? If we were to ask God to open up our hearts and help us to grow in sanctification, the word that refers to that time in between when we're born again and when we die and are glorified in heaven, the sanctification where day by day our hearts are drawn to God in a growing way. Where would we turn? Well, it is for this purpose that I would like us to spend the next few weeks studying this psalm that you're open to, which is Psalm 19. Because this is a good place to turn in asking God to open up our hearts with his brilliant light and to help us grow in godliness. Now, that's not the only theme of this psalm, and this week we'll study uh, the first couple of sections of this psalm before we turn to this request for a growing knowledge of the character that God can illumine in us, the, the awareness of our own sins, even our secret sins. Well, let us turn then to this psalm, Psalm 19. We'll read the whole psalm. It is for the choir director, and it is not a psalm of Moses, but a psalm of David. This is the word of God, eternally true. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chambers. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you'll break down this psalm into its parts, you can see the following outline. Basically, three sections. The first section is the book of nature revealing the glory of God. The second section is the book of Scripture revealing the grace of God. And then the third section is the one who's praying, David, 
asking God to send him more grace that he'll see even more, and namely that he'll see who he is and, and the nature of his own heart, and that God will work with him. So first, verses 1 to 6, the book of nature revealing the glory of God. Second, verses 7 to 11, the book of scripture revealing the grace of God. And third, the psalmist asking God to give him more of his grace that he might see and understand his own heart and be cleansed. Now first, let's take sections 1 and 2 and clump them together. They all reveal God. Um, But I want you to uh, learn a concept this morning, which is the language that I've been using, namely the book of nature and the book of scripture. Because it's very important that you be aware that these are two aspects of God revealing himself and his nature to man. This week I was... uh, listening to an interview on uh, the public uh, radio station of the Behrmans and the anniversary and the, the preparation for the memorial service for their daughter, Jill, who was uh, unjustly killed. And it was very interesting in the interview to listen to how people deal with the issue of injustice in this world. And so often people... Uh, are not aware of the fact that God has, in fact, given this world an understanding, and you can see it in the laws that have been passed by legislatures and even uh, implemented by tribal chiefs around the world and all through time, namely uh, the prohibition against the unjust taking of human life. And this is a great evil. And as Christians, we often are intimidated into thinking that what the Bible reveals to us, uh, we cannot expect, nor legislate, nor uh, take a stand in court in, in favor of, because after all, the reason we understand that Scripture is true is because we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and you can't expect those who do not believe in Jesus Christ to be able to understand these same truths. Well, justice... Uh, and truthfulness are uh, something that God has given to be universally binding, just as marriage, for instance, is universally binding. Marriage was given before the fall, and it was given to all mankind. And so all through history, uh, we see men going after the standard that God set up, namely one man, one woman, uh, together for life. This is what marriage is. Justice, the, the absolute prohibition of the unjust taking of the life of another human being. Again, all through history, all men, this is an absolute bedrock principle. And so there are some principles which are foundational and which God in many different ways has revealed to all men all through time. There are other things that are revealed only in God's word. And what we see when we study scripture is that the light of nature, the book of nature, is enough to condemn us, but not enough to save us. Uh, This is one of the areas where Protestants, and particularly Reformed Protestants, um, have a different uh, emphasis than the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has much more confidence in the book of nature than Protestants and Reformed Protestants do. But we do not deny the book of nature. We do not deny that creation 
is able to show many things that are important to those who do not have the Bible. But it is not sufficient to save people because the Bible itself testifies about itself. How will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? And it's speaking specifically of the good news that is in this holy book, the Bible. We'll come back now and think about how this psalm has three sections. The first two point to those two items. Number one, the book of nature, and number two, the book of Scripture. Uh, the, the created world, number one, and God's inspired word, number two. And we call this first book, the book of nature, we also call it natural revelation, we also call it general revelation. And the second book, resident in the Bible, we call the book of Scripture, or we call it special revelation. And they're very different, general revelation and special revelation. Um, special revelation is the part of truth that God reveals to those that he chooses to reveal it to. Not everyone has had a Bible. Not everyone has had it translated into their tongue. And we can be upset at God for not giving everybody an equal chance, but this is the nature of uh, human existence. God has constantly chosen for himself a people. And it is, he is calling us to go out and to make the gospel clear to everyone. And so it is our job to translate the Bible into every language we can. But sadly, many across history have lacked access to God's revelation of himself in the word. And so then what do they have? Well, what they have is nature. And if we look at nature and ask, where is it in nature that the most glorious presentation of the nature of God is, of the character of God, of the perfections of God, all through history, the first place people have turned their minds is one of two places, either a newborn baby or uh, the heavens. And the heavens is the place that we turn to at the beginning of this psalm. And you'll see that verses 1 to 6 are a devotion, uh, a revealing of the nature of God as it comes through the heavens. Today, we marvel at the glory of the heavens. I remember talking to a former member of our congregation who died last year, Rita Cuffey, and asking her how she went into astronomy and studied astronomy. Why? And she said, well, when I was growing up, I was always trying to know God, and I didn't know where to know him. So I would go into churches, and I'd listen to them in churches, and, and it was clear they didn't know God. And so then I decided that I'd, I'd take philosophy. And she said, so I studied a whole bunch of philosophers, and only one of them came close to addressing the issue of God. So I realized I wouldn't find God in philosophy. And so then I thought astronomy. And she said, there I did find God. She found God in astronomy. Now, what did she find about God? Well, here at the beginning of this chapter, it says that the heavens do declare, they tell the glory of God. And there are a few things that are more glorious in astronomy than simply to say, how large is the universe? Uh, as we today, through the Hubble telescope and future efforts maybe to put um, a radio telescope on the backside of the moon or some other place where it's shielded 
uh, as we learn more and more about uh, how large the universe is, it is a glorious thing. Uh, in preparation for preaching, I just did a Google search on <clears throat> size of the universe, and it was interesting. Out of maybe 20 or 30 pages I looked at, uh, almost none of them did anything other than talk about how one would go about measuring the universe, but never giving any estimate of the size. Um, most of the most of the pages talked about something that I don't understand, but those of you who are mathematical or astronomical would understand called Hubble's constant and I don't know what it is but I know that nothing I could understand told me anything about the size of the universe and I kept persevering and then this is what I came up with this is the closest to what I got Dr. Simon Mitten the science director of Cambridge University Press says this he says I find it impossible to imagine the true size of the universe so there's one estimate. He finds it impossible to imagine the true size of the universe. And uh, taking this from a web page, uh, sciencenet.org in the UK, this is what I read. Just how big is big? Well, continuing on from Simon Mitten at Cambridge, his estimate, this is what they say. The most helpful way for us to appreciate just how big the universe is is to imagine distances we already know. And so they use the distance between Edinburgh and London, 600 miles. They say if you covered this distance two million times, that would be the distance from the Earth to the nearest star, the Sun. So you go the 600 miles from London up to Edinburgh, and you do that two million times, and you've gotten to the Sun. If we made a scale model of the Sun using an orange, then the Earth would be a fraction of an inch across, this tiny, tiny little thing, and it would be at the far end of an average size living room. And the nearest star to the sun would be about 1,500 miles away. The real distance to this star is so great that it would take our fastest probe some 10,000 years to reach it. If you went around the Earth about 100 million times, then you would cover the same distances from the sun to the center of our galaxy. A swirling whirlpool of stars in space called the Milky Way. Although it takes a beam of light just one second to go around the Earth, an incredible seven times, so in one second a beam of light go, circle the Earth seven times, it would still take the same beam of light 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way. And to top it all, light from the edge of the universe has taken 15,000 million years to reach us. What else is out there? Well, there's more to the universe than the Milky Way. Our galaxy is just one of the many billions and billions scattered throughout the universe. One of the closest is the Andromeda Galaxy, where most aliens and science fiction films seem to come from. And you can see this galaxy on autumn evenings without a telescope or binoculars. It looks like a fuzzy patch of light, but it is, in fact, a galaxy bigger than our own, and so far away it takes two million years for its light to reach us. Dr. Liz Conlon from the Armagh Planetarium says this, The concept of how big space is really blows your mind. When people study stars, they see the Earth as just a little speck of dust. 
it really puts things into perspective. Another page from maintained by both the Argonne National Laboratory here in the U.S. and the Department of Energy, where someone wrote in and said this. She wrote, I have always wondered about the universe. How big is it? Is there a wall where the astronauts can hit and say, oops, there's the end? Or does it go on forever? And here are two separate responses from the scientists who answer our question sent into this webpage. First, scientists. According to our present understanding and knowledge, the universe goes on forever. We do not have any sensible model in which you come to an end of space. There are models in which the space is finite, but still do not have any boundary. It still has no boundary. Second response, how big is it? Nobody knows. We do know it is at least something like 10 billion light years in radius because we can see stars out that far. Most people think the universe is what? This is a scientist saying this. Infinite. Most people think the universe is infinite, at least in some sense, so that it really does not ever end. Aristotle long ago said this, Should a man live underground and there converse with the works of art and mechanism, in other words, everything we know that we can know underground, and should afterwards be brought up into the open day and see the glories of heaven and earth, he would immediately pronounce them the works of such a being as we define God to be. And so we read here from the psalmist David, the heavens are telling what? The glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And you know, there are many things that the book of nature reveals to us, but I would have to say that this is the main message and that is the glory of God. God is not small. God is not a grandfather. God is not limited. God is not ignorant. God is not a liar. God is not sinful. God does not have to be taught the concept of the United States political ideology of fairness. God is glorious. And this is the main message of nature. In Romans 1, 20-21, we read, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So this is the book of nature. This is general revelation. This is something that every man, that every woman who has ever lived has clearly seen. This is something that Aristotle himself wrote about. And men are without excuse. What does the book of Scripture reveal beyond that? Well, the book of Scripture begins to be spoken of in this psalm with verse 7 going through to verse 10 or 11, depending on how you divide it. And it says in verse 7, the law of the Lord. So now we move from the book of nature to the book of Scripture. 
God's revealed His glory in nature. What does He reveal in Scripture? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now, you can go out under a night sky. Some of us were over at the Olsons the other night with a couple of telescopes or binoculars looking at the um, uh, eclipse of the moon. And I hope all of you got a chance to see it. I was trying to call as many of you as I could to tell you to go look at it, but many people couldn't see it because of the trees and the angle. Well, if you went out that night and you looked under the stars, you could easily say that being under the stars and seeing the eclipse of the moon restored the soul. You know what else restores our soul? The law of the Lord. It says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It says the testimony, verse 7, of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Verse 8, it says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now I ask you, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, do they restore your soul? Do you, they make you wise and do they cause your heart to rejoice? If you do not find your heart rejoicing in this book, the problem isn't in the book, but the problem is in your heart. And we're going to get into this more in a few seconds, but more next week and the weeks to come. But if you'll look at verses 7 through 11, it's very interesting how the, uh, the rhythm of the text goes. The law of the Lord, perfect restoring the soul. Testimony of the Lord, sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord, right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord, pure, enlightening the eyes. Fear of the Lord, clean, enduring forever. Judgments of the Lord, true, righteous altogether. More desirable than gold. Yes, than more fine gold. So here he, here he stops and he says, you know, I'm not going to keep mentioning all the specifics of God and His character and His laws in Scripture. I'm just going to go on blubbering. And at verse 10 he says, they're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there's great reward. Now, is this the way that you approach the Bible? Do you have this kind of relationship with the Bible? A relationship that when you read in here what God has commanded us, that you find yourself being restored in your soul, being made wise in your mind, rejoicing in your heart, having your eyes lit up. Uh, do you find yourself meditating on the fact that you'd rather have this book than you would to have all the gold of the earth, that you'd rather have this book and eat it than you would to eat the sweetest honey. You know, is this your relationship with the book? Do you realize that this is one of the indications of the work of God in giving you new life? If you are born again, this is your attitude towards the Word of God because God causes His children to love His Word. This Word is perfect. There's neither too much nor too little. In this book, all we need to live a godly life in Christ is contained. There's nothing missing. And there's no falsehood or error in it. It's perfect in every word. Not just the concepts that it's trying to teach us. Not just spiritual truths. It's true when it speaks about nature. It's true when it speaks about creation. It's true when it speaks about Adam and Eve. And it restores the soul. When we look in it, Whatever we have caused our soul to be harmed by, whatever we have done that has led our soul to become an invalid, this book restores it. This book makes us healthy again. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure. There's absolutely no amount of politicking or scholarly debate in universities and colleges that can change God's testimony. They are absolutely certain. And this is what Jesus himself said about them in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The testimony of the Lord makes the simple wise. And then David goes into what a joy this book gives him. How much he loves it. How he'd rather have it than gold. How he'd rather eat it than honey. And we see this theme often in Scripture. In Psalm 119, verses 101 to 14, we read, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Ezekiel 3, 1-4, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, eat this book, eat this page, all right? And go speak to the house of Israel. And so I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll, this book, okay? And he said to me, Son of man, Feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. And then I ate it, and what? It was sweet as honey in my mouth. Is that the relationship you have with the Bible? And then verse 11, a bridge to the final third of this psalm. Moreover, by them, God's judgments and statutes and word, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. By them, God's judgment, statutes, and word. Your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Now, turn with me to verses 12 to 14. I want to make a few comments about them after reading them, and then we'll turn to them again next week. The book of nature, the book of creation, general revelation, the book of scripture, special revelation. And now, all of it comes together so that David prays this prayer to God, beginning with verse 12. He says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Christians today who believe the Bible have been fooled into thinking that God is indifferent to our sins after we believe in Jesus. And that the question of sin in the life of a Christian is a question to be dealt with by looking to the blood of Jesus and having faith in the cross and remembering that in this life there will never be perfection, that God knows we're sinners, he knows our frame that we're made of dust, and that we need to simply claim faith in Jesus Christ and and have the victorious life of, of just, you know, don't allow Satan to accuse you. You know, don't, don't live under uh, the discouragement and the defeat 
of awareness of your sin. This is why Jesus died. He died to give us freedom from guilt and freedom from the pain of the awareness of our sins. Now, of course, this is true, but error and lies consist of taking truth and twisting it in a way that God did not intend it to be used. And so often I hear from people directly and indirectly that uh, in their spiritual lives, uh, they have had so many hard things happen to them that uh, they really don't need anybody telling them about their sin. What they need to be told about is the grace of God. And I ask you, if that's true, if what we really need in life is simply to be constantly reminded of the grace of Jesus Christ, why would it be that we would have places like this all through Scripture where godly people not only show their awareness of their own sin, but then ask God to increase that awareness? In other words, let me ask you this. If we agree that the book of Psalms is the prayer book of Christians, do we believe that this psalm is the prayer book of Christians? Do we believe that this section of this psalm is the prayer book of Christians? In other words, do we believe that a true Christian, a true believer, will go to the Word of God constantly having the question, Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words... Christians going to this text, going to these verses, seeing David and praying as David prays, are asking God to show them their secret sins and to root them out of them. And I think many of us would look at that and we would say, it's overwhelming, I can't handle it. And I say, well, I thought you told me that you spend your life meditating on the grace of Jesus Christ. How can you say you can't handle it if you claim to love the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ and the mercy of Christ and the tenderness of your Father? If you know the character of God, if you know that He is merciful to those who are weak and to those who fall into sin, then why would we turn away from discovering our sins more day by day? And the reason is we don't really know the grace of God. We really are quite addicted to our own failures and to the oppressions and injustices we've suffered. We really have hearts that are bound up in bitterness and resentment and feelings of impotence and the absence of power and the absence of uh, all of the gifts that God has claimed that he gives us through his Holy Spirit. And so... You know, as we go into a time of studying this last third of the psalm, I would just say to you, do you know the glory of God through the book of nature? His majesty, his power, his authority, his perfections. Do you know the glory of God through his word, which reveals to us that everything written here, including all of those gnarly commandments, is perfect, that Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away before the tiniest punctuation mark of them. Will be, will, be, will be done. All right? If you really know this, then you have the freedom to go to this same God, knowing his character, knowing his word, and to say with David, to pray with David, 
Acquit me of my hidden faults. Father, shine the brilliant sun of Your Word, of Your truth, of Your Holy Spirit into my heart in such a way that I grow in my awareness of A, my own complete sinfulness, and B, my Savior's righteousness. You see, there's absolutely no way of getting to the joy of the righteousness of Christ except passing through a growing awareness of our sin. Who would have a hypothetical appreciation for the righteousness of Christ? An imaginative construct of the righteousness of Christ. A just sort of objective fact of the righteousness. Have any of you ever been able to look at the righteousness of Christ without thinking of your sin? Either in appreciation or in mortification? I mean, I think it's very hard to have anything other than a subjective relationship with the righteousness of Christ. You get what I'm saying? In other words... The Bible gives us the freedom. The character of God gives us the freedom. The glory of the universe gives us the freedom to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and to recognize His mercy and to say to Him, would you go in there and clean up more? Think of a home, all right? Very, very dirty, right? Gotten through winter. Maybe the windows were never opened and, and the front door was shut as quickly as possible and the spiders had their way and, and our skin had its way. All those little skin mites are just wiggling, 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 and um, I don't know what else dirty. Uh, the carpet, we've had lots of guests, Christmas open house. Um, the windows, you know, storms blow and they take mineral deposits off the screens and the outside of the windows. Just And, and just think, all over the house, it's dirt, 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 right? And so spring comes. And being a good housekeeper, what we do is we say, Johnny, don't you dare open up the windows. Don't you dare shine light into this room. It's a filthy room. Keep the light away. We already know how dirty it is. We don't need light. That's exactly the way we approach our hearts. You know, we say, you know, I know my heart, but boy, I have the joy of Jesus Christ knowing that He's paid the penalty for my heart. Now, keep the light away. You know? Let me find a preacher who will not shine light into my heart. I can't stand light. As a matter of fact, I can't stand the Bible. As a matter of fact, I can't stand the law of God. Because all it does is shine light into me. And I really don't like light because inside I'm just bound up and very dirty. And if we keep the light away, I won't be reminded of it. And I can just have victory in Jesus. But you know, that's not how God works. It's not how he works in our homes. Good housekeeper, when spring comes, does what? Spring housekeeping. <laughs> you know, all the kids help, and they all go into all the various corners, and they turn on that bright halogen tortier or whatever you call it, and all of a sudden, it becomes clear. In fact, the other night I was over here, and I saw this huge cobweb coming over there. And so I went to the deacons, and I said, would you please turn off the fluorescent lights in the front section of the sanctuary? Because we all know that it's dirty, but praise God, we can worship God in a dirty sanctuary. You know, God's cleanness is all we need. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's not even worth talking about, and yet I hear it so constantly. People want teachers and preachers and churches that will never shine light into their hearts, but only look at Jesus. Just the cross. That's all we need. But my heart... I love my heart just the way it is. I like to be in bondage, and I like it to be dark. I pull the shades, and I have awnings outside, and I have the evergreens growing up in front of the awnings. 
and never will there be light coming into my heart. But I love Jesus. Well, you see, it's impossible. You cannot be meditating on the glory of God revealed in creation and then the glory of God and his word revealed in the scriptures and the beauty of it better than gold, the sweetness of it better than honey, without then saying, God, give me more of this. And what is the more? The more is, hey, God, go after my secret sins. Go after the the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart. God, finish the work so that I'm acceptable in your sight. And so as we come into studying this final third, my question for you is, do you believe that this is God's desire? Do you believe that this will lead to your happiness and contentment? Or do you think that your happiness and contentment consists of pulling the drapes, pulling the shades, okay, putting awnings over the front of the window and then having evergreens grow so that light never penetrates and shows you the cobwebs and the dirt and the dust and all the muck that's in the room? That's your choice. And the Bible tells us that Christians desire three things with respect to sin. Justification, when we're born again, that sin does not condemn. Sanctification, that sin doesn't reign over us. And glorification, after death, when we stand in the presence of God, that sin won't be. So, sanctification. Do you believe in it? David did, and that's what the final third of the psalm is about, and that's what we're going to be studying. Let's pray.